Chapter Twenty Six, Part One of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Six: The Wars of Italy. Charles VIII, fourteen eighty three to fourteen ninety eight, part one. Louis the eleventh had, by the queen his wife, Charlotte of Savoy, six children. Three of them survived him: Charles the eighth, his successor; Anne, his eldest daughter, who had espoused Peter of Bourbon, sire de Beaujeu; and Joan, whom he had married to the Duke of Orleans, who became Louis the twelfth. At their father's death, Charles was thirteen. Anne twenty-two or twenty-three, and Joan nineteen. According to Charles V's decree, which had fixed fourteen as the age for the king's majority, Charles VIII, on his accession, was very nearly a major, but Louis XI, with good reason, considered him far from capable of reigning as yet. On the other hand, he had a very high opinion of his daughter Anne, and it was to her, far more than to Sire de Beaujeu, her husband, that six days before his death, and by his last instructions, he entrusted the guardianship of his son, to whom he already gave the title of king, and the government of the realm. They were oral instructions not set forth in or confirmed by any regular testament, but the words of Louis the Eleventh had great weight, even after his death. Opposition to his last wishes was not wanting. Louis, Duke of Orleans, was a natural claimant to the regency, but Anne de Beaujeu, immediately and without consulting anybody, took up the position which had been entrusted to her by her father, and the fact was accepted without ceasing to be questioned. Louis the Eleventh had not been mistaken in his choice. There was none more fitted than his daughter Anne to continue his policy under the reign and in the name of his successor. A shrewd and clever woman, if ever there was one, says Brantome, and the true image in everything of King Louis her father. She began by acts of intelligent discretion. She tried not to subdue by force the rivals and malcontents, but to put them in the wrong in the eyes of the public, and to cause embarrassment to themselves by treating them with fearless favor. Her brother-in-law, the Duke of Bourbon, was vexed at being only in appearance and name the head of his own house, and she made him constable of France and lieutenant-general of the kingdom. The friends of Duke Louis of Orléans, amongst others his chief confidant, George of Amboise, Bishop of Montauban, and Count Dunois, son of Charles the Seventh's hero, persistently supported the Duke's rights to the regency, and Madame, the tile Anne de Beaujeu had assumed, made Duke Louis governor of Ile-de-France and of Champagne, and sent Dunois as governor to Dauphiny. She kept those of Louis the Eleventh's advisers for whom the public had not conceived a perfect hatred, like that felt for their master, and Comines alone was set aside as having received from the late king too many personal favours, and as having too much inclination towards independent criticism of the new regency. Two of Louis XI's subordinate and detested servants, Oliver de Dame and John Doyac, were prosecuted, and one was hanged and the other banished, and his doctor, James Cartier, was condemned to disgorge fifty thousand crowns out of the enormous presents he had received from his patient. At the same time that she thus gave some satisfaction to the cravings of popular wrath, Anne de Beaujeu threw open the prisons, recalled exiles, forgave the people a quarter of the talliage, 
cut down expenses by dismissing six thousand Swiss, whom the late king had taken into his pay, re-established some sort of order in the administration of the domains of the crown, and in fine, and in fine, whether in general measures or in respect of persons, displayed impartiality without paying court, and firmness without using severity. Here was, in fact, a young and gracious woman who gloried solely in signing herself Anne of France, whilst respectfully following out the policy of her father, a veteran king, able, mistrustful, and pitiless. Anne's discretion was soon put to a great trial. A general cry was raised for the convocation of the States-General. The ambitious hoped thus to open a road to power. The public looked forward to it for a return to legalized government. No doubt Anne would have preferred to remain more free and less responsible in the exercise of her authority, for it was still very far from the time when national assemblies could be considered as a permanent power and a regular means of government. But Anne and her advisers did not waver. They were too wise and too weak to oppose a great public wish. The States-General were convoked at Tours for the 5th of January, 1484. On the 15th they met in the great hall of the Archbishop's Palace. Around the king's throne sat two hundred and fifty deputies, whom the successive arrivals of absentees raised to two hundred and eighty-four. France, in all its entirety, says Monsieur Picot, found itself for the first time represented. Flanders alone sent no deputies until the end of the session, but Provence, Roussillon, Burgundy, and Dauphiny were eager to join their commissioners to the delegates from the provinces united from the oldest times to the crown. Histoire des Etats Généraux, from 1355 to 1614, by George Picot, page 360. We have the journal of these states-general drawn up with precision and detail by one of the chief actors, John Massillon, canon of and deputy for Rouen, an eminent speaker, says a contemporary Norman chronicle, who delivered on behalf of the common weal, in the presence of kings and princes, speeches full of elegance. We may agree that, compared with the pompous pedantry of most speakers of his day, the oratorical style of John Massillon is not without a certain elegance, but that is not his great and his original distinction. What marks him out and gives him so high a place in the history of the fifteenth century is the judicious and firm political spirit displayed in his conduct as deputy and in his narrative as historian. The journal, written by the author in Latin, was translated into French and published, original and translation, by M. A. Bernier, in 1835, in the Collection des Documents Inédits Relatifs d'Histoire de France. And it is not John Massillon only, but the very assembly itself in which he sat, that appears to us, at the end of five centuries, seriously moved by a desire for free government, and not far from comprehending and following out the essential conditions of it. France had no lack of states-general full of brilliancy and power, between 1356 and 1789, from the reign of Charles V to that of Louis XVI. But in the majority of these assemblies, for all the ambitious soarings of liberty, it was at one time religious party spirit, and at another the spirit of revolution that ruled and determined both acts and events. Nothing of that kind appeared in the States-General assembled at Tours in 1484. The assembly was profoundly monarchical, not only on general principles, but in respect of the reigning house and the young king seated on the throne. There was no fierce struggle, either, between the aristocracy and the democracy of the day, between the ecclesiastical body and the secular body, 
although widely differing and widely separated. The clergy, the nobility, and the third estate were not at war, even in their hearts, between themselves. One and the same idea, one and the same desire, animated the three orders, to such a degree that, as has been well pointed out by M. Picot, in the majority of the towns they proceeded in common to the choice of deputies. The clergy, nobles, and commons who arrived at Tours were not the representatives exclusively of the clergy, the nobles, or the third estate. They combined in their persons a triple commission. And when, after having examined together their different memorials, by the agency of a committee of thirty-six members, taken in equal numbers from the three orders, they came to a conclusion to bring their grievances and their wishes before the government of Charles the Eighth. They decided that a single spokesman should be commissioned to sum up, in a speech delivered in a solemn session, the report of the committee of thirty-six, and it was the canon, Master John Maslin, who received the commission to speak in the name of all. They had at heart one and the same idea. They desired to turn the old and undisputed monarchy into a legalized and free government. Clergy, nobles, and third estate, there was not in any of their minds any revolutionary yearning or any thought of social war. It is the peculiar and the beautiful characteristic of the States-General of 1484 that they had an eye to nothing but a great political reform, a regiment of legality and freedom. Two men, one a Norman and the other a Burgundian, the canon John Maslin and Philip Pott, Lord of Roche, a former counsellor of Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, were the exponents of this political spirit, at once bold and prudent, conservative and reformative. The nation's sovereignty and the right of the estates not only to vote imposts, but to exercise a real influence over the choice and conduct of the officers of the crown, this was what they affirmed in principle, and what, in fact, they labored to get established. I should like, said Philip de la Roche, to see you quite convinced that the government of the state is the people's affair, and by the people I mean not only the multitude of those who are simply subjects of this crown, but indeed all persons of each estate, including the princes also. Since you consider yourself deputies from all the estates of the kingdom, why are you afraid to conclude that you have been especially summoned to direct by your consuls the commonwealth during its quasi-interregnum caused by the king's minority? Far be it from me to say that the reigning, properly so called, the dominion, in fact, passes into any hands but those of the king. It is only the administration, the guardianship of the kingdom, which is conferred for a time upon the people or their elect. Why tremble at the idea of taking in hand the regulation, arrangement, and nomination of the council of the crown? You are here to say and to advise freely that which, by inspiration of God and your conscience, you believe to be useful for the realm. What is the obstacle that prevents you from accomplishing so excellent and meritorious a work? I can find none, unless it be your own weakness and the pusillanimity which causes fear in your minds. Come, then, most illustrious lords, have great confidence in yourselves, have great hopes, have great manly virtue, and let not this liberty of the estates, that your ancestors were so zealous in defending, be imperiled by reason of your soft-heartedness. This speech, says Mazelin, was listened to by the whole assembly very attentively and very favorably. Mazelin, being called upon to give the king in his privy chamber, before the dukes of Orléans and Lorraine, and a numerous company of nobles, an exact account of the estate's first deliberations, held in his turn language more reserved than, but similar to, that of Lord Philip de la Roche, whose views he shared and whose profound openness he admired. 
the question touching the composition of the king's council and the part to be taken in it by the estates was for five weeks the absorbing idea with the government and with the assembly there were made on both sides concessions which satisfied neither the estates nor the court for their object was always on the part of the estates to exercise a real influence on the government and on the part of the court to escape being under any real influence of the estates side by side with the question of the king's council was ranged that of the imposts and here it was no easier to effect an understanding the crown asked more than the estates thought they ought or were able to vote and after a long and obscure controversy about expenses and receipts Maslin was again commissioned to set before the king's council the views of the assembly and its ultimate resolution when we saw said he that the aforesaid accounts or estimates contained elements of extreme difficulty and that to balance and verify them would subject us to interminable discussions and longer labor than would be to our and the people's advantage we hasten to adopt by way of expedient but nevertheless resolutely the decision i am about to declare to you wishing to meet liberally the king's and your desires we offer to pay the sum that king charles the seventh used to take for the imposts of talliages provided however that this sum be equally and proportionately distributed between the provinces of the kingdom and that in the shape of an aid and this contribution be only for two years after which the estates shall be assembled as they are to-day to discuss the public needs and if at that time or previously they see the advantage thereof the said sums shall be diminished or augmented further the said my lords the deputies do demand that their next meeting be now appointed and declared and that an irrevocable decision do fix and decree that assembly this was providing at one and the same time for the wants of the present and the rights of the future the imposts of talliage was indeed voted just as it had stood under charles the seventh but it became a temporary aid granted for two years only at the end of them the estates were to be convoked and the tax augmented or diminished according to the public wants the great question appeared decided by means of the vote necessary and at the same time temporary in the case of the impost the states-general entered into real possession of a decisive influence in the government but the behaviour and language of the officers of the crown and of the great lords of the court rendered the situation as difficult as ever in a long and confused harangue the chancellor william de rochefort did not confine himself to declaring the sum voted twelve hundred thousand livres to be insufficient and demanded three hundred thousand livres more he passed over in complete silence the limitation of two years of the tax voted and the requirement that at the end of that time the states-general should be convoked whilst the chancellor was thus speaking says maslin many deputies of a more independent spirit kept groaning and all the hall resounded with a slight murmuring because it seemed that he was not expressing himself well as to the power and liberty of the people the deputies asked leave to deliberate in the afternoon promising a speedy answer as you wish to deliberate do so but briefly said the chancellor it would be better for you to hold counsel now so as to answer in the afternoon the deputies took their time and the discussion was a long and a hot one we see quite well how it is said the princes and the majority of the great lords to curtail the king's power and pare down his nails to the quick is the object of your efforts you forbid the subjects to pay their prince as much as the wants of the state require are they masters pray and no longer subjects you would set up the laws of some fanciful monarchy and abolish the old ones i know the rascals said one of the great lords according to one historian it was the duke of bourbon and de beaujeu's brother-in-law if they are not kept down by overweighting them they will soon become insolent 
For my part, I consider this tax the surest curb for holding them in. Strange words, says Mazelin, unworthy of utterance from the mouth of a man so eminent. But in his soul, as in that of all old men, covetousness had increased with age, and he appeared to fear a diminution of his pension. After having deliberated upon it, the States-General persisted in their vote of a tax of twelve hundred thousand livres, at which figure it had stood under Charles the Seventh, but for two years only, and as a gift or grant, not as a permanent talliage any more, and on condition that at the end of that time the state should be necessarily convoked. At the same time, however, over and above this, the said estates, who do desire the well-being, honour, prosperity, and augmentation of the Lord King and of his kingdom, and in order to obey him and please him in all the ways possible, do grant him the sum of three hundred thousand livres of tours, for this once only, and without being a precedent, on account of his late joyful accession to the throne of France, and for to aid and support the outlay which it is suitable to make for his holy consecration, coronation, and entry into Paris. On this fresh vote, full of fidelity to the monarchy and at the same time of patriotic independence, negotiations began between the estates and the court. They lasted from the 28th of February to the 12th of March, but without result. At bottom, the question lay between absolute power and free government, between arbitrariness and legality, and on this field both parties were determined not to accept a serious and final defeat. Unmoved by the loyal concessions and assurances they received, the advisers of the crown thought no longer of anything but getting speedily rid of the presence of the estates, so as to be free from the trouble of maintaining the discussion with them. The deputies saw through the device. Their speeches were stifled, and the necessity of replying was eluded. "'My Lord Chancellor,' said they, at an interview on the 2nd of March, 1484, "'if we are not to have a hearing, why are we here? Why have you summoned us? Let us withdraw. If you behave thus, you do not require our presence.' We did not at all expect to see the fruits of our vigils, and the decisions adopted after so much trouble, by so illustrious an assembly, rejected so carelessly. The complaints were not always so temperate. A theologian, whom Mazelin quotes without giving his name, a bold and fiery partisan of the people, says he, added these almost insulting words. As soon as our consent had been obtained for raising the money, there is no doubt but that we have been cajoled, that everything has been treated with contempt, the demands set down in our memorials, our final resolutions, and the limits we fixed. Speak we of the money. On this point our decisions have been conformed to only so far as to tell us, This impost shall no longer be called talliage, it shall be a free grant. Is it in words, pray, and not in things, that our labour and the well-being of the State consist? Verily, we would rather still call this impost talliage, and even blackmail, maltote, or give it a still viler name, if there be any, then see it increasing immeasurably and crushing the people. The curse of God and the execration of men upon those whose deeds and plots have caused such woes. They are the most dangerous foes of the people and of the commonwealth. The theologian burned with the desire to continue, adds Mazelin, but though he had not wandered far from the truth, many deputies chid him and constrained him to be silent. Already lethargy had fallen upon the most notable amongst us, glutted with favours and promises, they no longer possessed that ardour of will which had animated them at first. When we were prosecuting our business, they remained motionless at home. When we spoke before them, they held their peace or added but a few feeble words. We were wasting our time. On the 12th of March, 1484, 
the deputies from Normandy, twenty-five in number, happened to hold a meeting at montille les tours The bishop of Coutances told them that there was no occasion for the estates to hold any more meetings, that it would be enough if each of the six sections appointed three or four delegates to follow the course of affairs, and that, moreover, the compensation granted to all the deputies of the estates would cease on the 14th of March, and after that would be granted only to their delegates. This compensation had already, amongst the estates, been a subject of a long discussion. The clergy and the nobility had attempted to throw the whole burden of it upon the third estate. The third estate had very properly claimed that each of the three orders should share proportionately in this expense, and the Chancellor had with some difficulty got it decided that the matter should stand so. On the 14th of March, accordingly, the six sections of the estates met and elected three or four deputies apiece. The deputies were a little surprised, on entering their sessions hall, to find it completely dismantled. Carpets, hangings, benches, table, all had been removed, so certainly did the government consider the session over. Some members, in disgust, thought and maintained that the estates ought not to separate without carrying away with them the resolution set down in their general memorial, formally approved and accompanied by an order to the judges to have them executed. But a much larger number, says Mazelin, were afraid of remaining too long, and many of our colleagues, in spite of the zeal which they had once shown, had a burning desire to depart, according to the prince's good pleasure and orders. As for us, we enjoined upon the three deputies of our Norman nationality not to devote themselves solely to certain special affairs, which had not yet been terminated, but to use redoubled care and diligence in all that concerned the general memorial and the aggregate of the estates. And having thus left our commissioners at Tours and put matters to rights, we went away well content, and we pray God that our labors and all that has been done may be useful for the people's welfare. Neither Mazelin nor his descendants for more than three centuries were destined to see the labors of the States-General of 1484 obtain substantial and durable results. The work they had conceived and attempted was premature. The establishment of a free government demands either spontaneous and simple virtue, such as may be found in a young and small community, or the lights, the scientific method, and the wisdom, painfully acquired and still so imperfect, of great civilized nations. France of the fifteenth century was in neither of these conditions, but it is a crown of glory to have felt that honest and patriotic ambition which animated Mazelin and his friends at their exodus from the corrupt and corrupting despotism of Louis the Eleventh. Who would dare to say that their attempt, vain as it was for them, was so also for generations separated from them by centuries. Time and space are as nothing in the mysterious development of God's designs towards men, and it is the privilege of mankind to get instruction and example from far-off memories of their own history. It is a duty to render the States-General of 1484 the homage to which they have a right by reason of their intentions and their efforts on behalf of the good cause, and in spite of their unsuccess. End of chapter 26, part 1